listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is the first Monday of summer so I hope you're all enjoying it. We have a great guest today. Uh, Marianne Frangoulis is the Executive Director of the Massachusetts Organization for Addiction Recovery, also known as MORE, where her priorities include community mobilization of recovering persons, friends, and families to reduce discrimination related to addiction throughout Massachusetts. In 1991, she was an associate founder and later a leader of MORE until she became employed there in 1999. She holds a BA from Framingham State College and an MS in Counselor Education from Suffolk University. And she has also taken graduate courses in family counseling at Northeastern University. Initially as a professional in the addiction field, she led the way for licensing alcohol and drug counselors, a very long effort in the state of Massachusetts. That legislative effort took 10 years, coping with four executive branch vetoes, and then finally a veto override, which led to the bill's passage. She discovered her voice, enhanced by empowering others, can make a difference. For the last 10 years, she has mentored over 2,000 people in recovery, families, and friends to become advocates, educating the public, and policymakers about the value of addiction recovery. Welcome, Marianne, to One Hour at a Time. It's great to be here. Thank you for asking me. This is, uh, I know this is a topic very near and dear to your heart, and over the course of uh, the last few months, we've been talking a lot about addiction as a brain disease, and we've had some families on that have talked about the stigma that they've felt um, when one of their family members has been diagnosed with an addiction, and we had one um, woman on whose son passed away and how people referred to her, the son that passed away is her bad son, and her other son is her good son, and and I know that um, you've spent years talking about the discrimination that people experience. So why is it that um, families and individuals in recovery and friends, why do they need to get together to advocate for themselves? Well, I think that you are, you know, phrasing a, a great background for all of this. It's because there needs to be um, a united voice, a collective voice, that we have that just needs to be enhanced more to give hope to others to end the discrimination so that people will understand that this disease is like any other disease such as cancer. When I was growing up, um, people did not want to talk about, you know, the effects of cancer or having cancer because it meant instant death and perhaps there was some kind of bad gene in your family that um, caused you to have this. So it was a hush-hush type of thing. Today, cancer is still a devastating disease, but people are walking and talking and sharing the hope that comes about through research um, and treatment. And it does no longer mean instant death. still devastating, but at the same time, there's a provision of hope. We want the same thing for recovery. We want people to be able to see the hope that lies in it and that people can talk openly about having the disease and also that recovery is possible. What are the types of discrimination that people with addictive disorders or addiction um, face? Well, it, one thing is, is, is the term, um, the labeling around druggy people um, associate um, addiction, you know, with crime, and it's certainly there. 
that's caused um, by the impact of um, the whole, you know, criminal use of, plus what you do underneath the influence of the, um, the, the drugs. It's not the person. So things that happen are, are things like what happens when you have a history um, that's associated with this, that you will have difficulty um, getting jobs, getting education, and getting housing. Um, also, if you want help and you have private insurance, although we hope that we're going to see some very positive change in the near future, and that has to do with, with parity. We've made headway with um, having to better and improve funding, which we hope um, will stay so that people can get treatment. But this is the only disease that I know of where somebody, you've got to say, um, you know, is there a bed available or you're not sick enough? Um, and that happens even in the public arena. Improved, but not to where we want it to be. Um, do you see any discrimination within the uh, addiction profession in general towards people with addicts? I know a lot of times we like to point our fingers outward, but do you see sure. internally? Well, I think um, as with any, um, probably any type of profession, one often needs to um, take a, a little bit of a refresher or vacation, and sometimes there's a tendency to blame the person versus acknowledge that there's a disease. I'm not saying that one doesn't need to have responsibility towards, you know, getting the help that they need, but oftentimes it's a professional can think that there is only one way or a few ways to recovery and, and be judgmental. So we end up blaming um, the addict versus really and truly understanding um, the the whole course of addiction. Right, right. And I think oftentimes we're we're not really trained to deal with somebody who's active in the throes of their illness. If somebody's actively taking medication or, or um, mis, misusing their prescription drugs or they're using um, street drugs or they're uh, drinking too much, they come into our offices, we say, well, come back. When the reality of it is there's no other disease that when you're acutely symptomatic, you're told to come back when you're not <laughs> symptomatic anymore. It's true, and especially um, when cutting back can also mean that, um, you know, you're, you're expecting that person to manage their own withdrawal, which can be deadly. So um, right. it's, it's real important that, that we, we're there to be, um, if you are a professional, and I have been in my past, and I still carry the professional ethics that I meet with people where I'm at and, you know, in, um, in recovery. And recover, recovery asks us to have an open mind. Um, if we're truly practicing what we, you know, need to have, that there is no um, one way. And, and if you think about it, think about um, do we turn around and, and blame a cancer patient because they've decided that, you know, they didn't think chemo could work for them? Um, you know, that they're not doing, you know, the the right thing. Um, I think you just need to be able to step 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 back and and probably, you know, and understand too what kind of frustration that person may be having. Well your uh, your analogy to the cancer patients I think is a really good one because I think what changed for public acceptance of 
of people who um, develop cancer is people start to talk about it and you start to find out how many mothers and sisters had breast cancer and now there's this huge breast cancer awareness and which caused an increase in research, which improved treatment, which um, improved outcomes. So there's, there's this whole um, domino effect to people finding a voice. Uh, the same thing with AIDS. When we, when we think about the AIDS crisis, if any disease was ever going to get pushed under the rug, it would have been AIDS. Mm-hmm. But people um, stood up and said, hey, we don't want to die. We don't deserve to die. You need to find a cure for this. Right. That's you so know? true. It's, 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 it's so true. And I see um, positive changes happening, but literally that saying, you know, step at a time. And, um, and also I think what's been helpful, you know, for myself is to do some history, that there's, to read some history. Um, the, the book Slaying the Dragon by William White, The History of Addiction Prevention, Treatment, and Recovery in America, um, really shows how there's been demonstrations you know, attempts over time to address this. But, um, you know, economics will turn around and um, it will fall apart. But my hope is just like it took a while for Alcoholics Anonymous to provide a peer-to-peer kind of support service, um, which has helped so many people. And now the next next level is truthfully getting to a point where we can... Um, have people feel comfortable talking talking openly about about recovery and about the devastation, but mostly that what happens when people enter enter recovery is that you see um, you know a change of life that's it that's for the better. You still got to be vigilant, um, but that is true for any other disease too. Um, how did the Massachusetts Organization for Addiction Recovery? How did that get started? Very interesting, um, as you and I know each other from the professional world. Um, way back when, when we wanted to get licensure for alcohol and drug counselors, and we experienced or perceived that there was discrimination, you know, out there towards the profession, um, we we band together um, and tried to rule out our differences. But as we did that, and it took ten years to make that happen, we turned around and said, you know, what's missing here? is the, um, let me use an outdated expression, but one that we know well, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, meaning the the person who is unattached to the profession but is a family member, is a supporter of recovery, and is a person living in their recovery that could be from any profession. And then we um, discovered at that point in time there was a national group called SOAR, Society of Americans for Recovery, which passed away, but then now has evolved as Faces and Voices of Recovery that we are attached to. So um, you asked me simply, how did we start? And I brought you like 10 years later. <laughs> um, so so this is uh, an advocacy group, and you are connected to Faces and Voices of Recovery? Yes. yes. In what way? Well, Faces and Voices of Recovery is a national group um, of people in recovery and their families and friends. And as they were evolving, um, we decided to um, hook, hook up with them through um, a regional group, too, that's called the New England Alliance for Addiction Recovery. Um, so we are, you know, involved on a state level. We are involved on a 
region level, we are involved um, in a national way. So um, in ways that we have been um, connected is that we've had media trainings and how, how do you talk to the media about recovery. We um, are being supportive of ending insurance discrimination nationally as well as statewide. Um, we advocate for recovery support services, um, which help people to, you know, maintain their recovery. We also, um, in regarding to criminal histories um, and knowing that that can change around, um, have been involved in a national way as well as in a statewide way. So there's the linkage there, um, and it's been exciting. Um, if people are listening, like in Nebraska or South Carolina or Denver, are there similar groups in other states? Yes, there are, and all you have to do is go to the Faces and Voices of Recovery um, website, and they're listed, um, which is which is great. And that website has tons of information. So um, I welcome people to go to that website. I would just you know Google in www. Faces and Voices of Recovery, and it'll will come up for you. <laughs> you can even just put in Faces and Voices of Recovery, and it will come up for you. Um, when we come back from our commercial break, we'll ask Marianne about some of the positive changes she's seen since the inception of war. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Marianne Frangoulis, the Executive Director for the Massachusetts Organization for Addiction Recovery, which is affiliated with our National Faces and Voices for Recovery. And um, before we talk about some of the successes, Marianne, maybe you could just share with everyone um, why is it important for families and people with substance use disorders and friends, why is it important for them to kind of come forward or come out? Well, it's important, and um, as I say that, um, nobody should feel coerced, but what happens in our our meetings is that um, someone will hear of more. We may have helped them through the whole um, treatment process, and they'll come to a meeting and meet people um, in recovery, and then they, they get the hope, and then they get the courage to speak openly, and they discover that their story helps another. You know, um, I have my own story, and when I share it, you know, people feel an an experience um, that hope too. But um, I really appreciate hearing and the voice of people in, in families. And what they have done, which has been so remarkable, is... While this, the whole upsurge of the oxycontin, which has been so devastating, but it made people, um, it made family members aware about the lack of services. And since they've spoken up, we're not where we want to be, but there is now um, six adolescent residential um, recovery homes in our state. There are three recovery high schools, and by that I mean high schools um, which are geared towards helping an adolescent have a recovery environment while they're getting their education. There's the first adolescent um, detox, which is called a crisis stabilization unit, which means that it offers more than detox. When I say detox, that is um, having um, a safe place for an adolescent to go into um, that allows for um, a longer length of time so that they can stabilize a bit and not have withdrawal um, and also look at what needs to be for the next steps. And, and now there's even a statewide that's been around for a few years now, a statewide um, youth coordinator with, who has staff with about four or five people. And that's because people are speaking up and they're calling their legislators. And I really applaud the family members who are um, very strong members in war. And we're also affiliated with other family um, parent support groups that are out there helping, um, you know, families with adolescents as well as adults um, that are suffering from this, this disease. The adolescents are really the kind of the lost folks in, in this whole spectrum of substance use disorders and it and addiction in terms of a brain disease. We don't really understand the adolescent brain that well, and we're not as, um, we don't have as much evidence-based practices for treatment, so they tend to get kind of pushed aside or um, ignored or denied services. Right, and um, and with that is the real need for um, people to to get get the support. It's been so good and not where we need to be that we have all these other services. And what's really good about having this um, youth case coordinator is that you have someone who can help 
have a few people who can help you through the system. But if you don't know about it, um, and it's located at the Institute for Health and Recovery um, in Cambridge, um, then you, you can feel so stymied trying to get somebody um, the help and support. And we very much help with that. We teach people how to navigate the system because it can be so um, so overwhelming. And as you talk about not understanding the adolescent brain, there was no adolescent services about five or six years ago, um, which is, was really, really, really bad. But because people are speaking up, they now now exist, not to the extent that we want that we want them to be, but there are some, and our voice has got to get louder about that too. And we are. If a family, like say, there's a family in um, I don't know Tennessee that wants to advocate for, uh, like, services for their adolescent. Um, do the legislators really listen to these families, or do they kind of get tuned In out? Massachusetts, our experience is that um, they are listening. They truthfully want to represent and help the people that they serve. You know, they want to stay in office. So if they get, and they will tell you, um, you know, five calls from their constituents. They know that something's up. We have wonderful legislators in, in Massachusetts that will, um, Senator Tolman in, in the Brighton, Watertown area, Cambridge, is, you know, really, really, really wonderful. And he's one of many, Representative um, Ruth Balzer from Newton, as well as Senator Gail Kandaris from the Springfield area. And as you ask about that, because of the need to address um, mental health and substance abuse services and the calls that were coming to the state house, um, two things happened. The state developed a um, state plan, a strategic plan, as well as um, they developed within the state legislature a mental health and substance abuse committee. So that's huge. Um, sometimes we think that people aren't going to care because of the discrimination, but once you start speaking up, um, you will find out that you can turn your legislator into an advocate for these services. So people in other states should should feel encouraged that yes. um, they should tell their stories. And, and I think it's been my experience that there's very few people, whether they're in the state office, government, or or even in the health in the health insurance industry that haven't been touched by addiction in one way or another. That's so true. I mean, if you consider in our state that I'm in Massachusetts, um, and you know, I don't know how many legislators there are in the you know each one of the other states, but this 200 um, legislators, 40 senators, and 160 representatives, and the stat is one in 10 persons is affected by addiction in our country. One in four families is affected by addiction. So in any state, um, and I mentioned Massachusetts, so that means that um, that all those that are family members have been touched. All those um, who um, are close to people will know that there are one in ten in their, um, in their districts. So that's got to be true cross-country. You know, I think that the families that are that have reached the point where they really want to advocate for their family members <laughs> have certainly come a long way in their own process because we know that addiction affects families as well. Do you have any um, suggestions for families who think, well, it's not my problem, it's my son's problem, it's my mother's problem, it's my cousin's problem, I don't need to do anything? 
Do you have anything to do with them? Well, I could probably save them some time because that's the natural, you know, process that we call denial. Um, everybody goes through it. Um, I could suggest that they go um, to our website and they'll see in our more mini-guide, we have a parent member named um, Diane Kurtz who started a parent support group over, God, 1991 while we were doing more. And she wrote up her own process and she did it with another one of her, her members. And in it, it says exactly that. But what she had to learn and um, if if family members were to read that, they would, um, you know, they could come to a better understanding because what Diane found out is that she's not alone. There's another parent support co- group called Learn to Cope in Massachusetts, which was really developed by um, Joanne Peterson, who um, recognized, you know, addiction in her, in her family and what she went through. Um, that's another wonderful resource. It's all about discovering that you're not alone. Yes, um, denial is the is the first sign. I um, I can identify with that myself, and um, you know, learned that I needed to go get help and support. Um, and with that, I learned how to help and support others. And I, and I think that that's so important. So many of these families. Um, feel alienated and ashamed and guilty. I know that oftentimes even adult parents feel like it's, you know, they either they've taken that on themselves or they've been made to feel like you've done something wrong. If you were a better parent, your kids wouldn't have a, a developed an addiction. And that could be whether they're 14 or 40. And um, we have such a conflicted relationship with alcohol and and prescription drugs and marijuana in our society that it really makes it hard sometimes to want to be honest about what's going on in your family. It's it's very, very, very true. Um, but I will give you uh, an example of one of our members who um, whose son happened to be involved in a drug court, and that drug court had a parent support group. And she said, oh, my God, okay, I'm going to go. Um she was confronted by his probation officer. And so she said, oh, my God, what if my neighbors are there? She walked in, and all her neighbors were there. And it was a discovery that she was not alone, and it was almost, you know, it was almost humorous. And that's the thing that people find, too, is through this pain, when you're connected to others, you also find a, a sense of, like, joy that you're not alone and you can do something because um, each person gives themselves hope. To each other, and the understanding that this really is a brain disease. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly, exactly. I mean, if we think about, you know, um, our own capacity. I mean, to learn without going through the various parts of the brain. You know, people have a way of perhaps having a predisposition because of the brain, and then there is also a way through the brain to um, learn the aspects of, of recovery. Um, and for some people, there's a saying, if I can take it from the AA Big Book, you know, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. Right. We've talked about um, adolescents being underserved in terms of addiction treatment. Are there other uh, groups that are underserved as well? 
Well, you mentioned the whole family piece. Um, there was a time when there was family services, and um, there is a need for family services um, when I'm talking about, you know, paid, but there aren't all that many professionals that understand the family dynamics. And um, that's changing, but there was a time that it was big to do families, um, and that was perhaps in the late 80s, and then along came managed care and decided not to, um, by managed care, I mean a change in our insurances that um, would disallow it and say that, you know, having a significant other in for family treatment um, did not meet medical necessity. Um, But that is something that we're hoping to to change and I think is changing because it's a family disease and um, that's been proven over and over. And we'll be right back with Mary Catherine Gullis to talk more about um, advocacy and the importance of having a united voice to end the discrimination that people face who have addictive disorders. We'll be right back. Great. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Marianne Frangoulis from the Massachusetts Organization of Addiction Recovery. And, Marianne, one of the things that I know a lot of our families face is that um, they may have health insurance, but the behavioral health component of it may be very little, or in order to access it, they have to go through three or four hoops that you don't need to go through for any other type of health care. And I'm just wondering, you know, in what ways do you see that families are denied access to treatment? And that is, I guess, the ultimate discrimination, isn't it? Well, it is. Supposedly, um, if you are, you know, if you have insurance and insurance coverage, um, 
that insurance coverage says in our state that you should be able to get, you know, 30 days of inpatient treatment and that you should have, which is outdated, $500 worth of outpatient coverage. But then you go and you try to get help and the insurer will say that um, you're this person does not meet medical necessity and you should try a lower level of care when ultimately that person may have been using um, for a very long time. So um, it is very, very, very um, challenging and um, I know that was one of the main things that made me want to get help, go go out and help, um, help, help people. I was fortunate that I was able to get eight weeks of treatment and that was back in the early early 80s. Um, today, um, you know, you don't get that. But there are opportunities for change, and this is really a step-at-a-time thing, and we have an opportunity to end insurance discrimination. Um, nationally, um, there is the Paul Wellstone Mental Health Substance Abuse Parity Act that um, looks like that the House, of representatives and senators have come to an agreement on it, and now it just needs to take that step further to have have Congress actually pass it and then um, have the have the president sign it. That will be a real milestone because we've been fighting for this, um, and you and I know um, back since I think it was 1995. Um, but that would help so much, and I think truthfully to give people credit. Um, you know the, the families who have been who have been fighting for change that we may be seeing some headway here. Also, in our state of Massachusetts, um, there is the um, there is a bill that looks like it's going to go up for House debate, and um, that's with Representative um, Ruth Balzer. But it, you know, I, I look forward to a time when we don't have to struggle. Um, to make this happen. And I think there are a number of states nationally that are also looking at enacting a parity bill. I believe Vermont already has it, don't they? Yes, they do. Yes, yes. And Um, New Hampshire has a a kind of a weak parity bill for addiction services. But I know a lot of states are looking at enacting it as well. Right, exactly, exactly. And if you can remember this, because I don't, but I know that there was a group that was looking for actual examples of insurance discrimination, and they were collecting a database. Right. Do you you remember who that group was? Um, Yes. Well, it was part of a coalition, if I have it right, that was, um, you know, fighting for national, um, you know, in a national way, a national pavement to end insurance discrimination. And, um, yes, they did get examples. As a matter of fact, you know, examples from our um, state here is there was, you know, a dad who was trying to get his son help and support and the insurance was denying treatment. And then he, well, here's a good thing. He said, I'm going to call the president of um, this insurance company. And he did it. And because he did that, the insurance did end up um, paying for his treatment. But um, you don't, should not have to go that far. Um, also, in our state, we encourage people to call the Office of Patient Protection. And I don't know if other states have that, but they will interfere and help and support you. But if you don't know um, that um, there is 
an Office of Patient Protection, or you can call the president, or you can appeal, you know, um, you get scared and don't. Well, is the Office of Patient Protection, is that under the Division of Health and Human Services or the Attorney General's Office? It is, um, truthfully, Health and Human Services. It's situated okay. over at our Massachusetts Department of, of Public Health. And um, if you look at our more um, website and our mini-guide, there's the telephone number for it. It's a very, very important um, resource. Would the National um, Faces and Voices have different... Um, resources available for other states, that would be a good place for people to go to look for similar programs in their state? I would imagine that um, each individual state has um, yeah, has a um, has a service for this. Um, and if they don't, demand it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, because people deserve to be treated. Exactly. I, I was talking with Ray Tamposi, who is the executive director of Gosnell in Massachusetts, and he was telling me that oftentimes insurance companies will deny the first time, but then you can appeal, and they make you jump through more hoops to the second time, and then you get denied, and then, they, then you appeal again, and you have to jump through even more hoops, mm-hmm. and the third time you're denied as well. But with each successive appeal, it requires more more staff time, more documentation, and the cost of this is horrific. It's, it seems to me like if they just paid it up front, the cost of all the appeals and the cost of all the the, uh, the social effects and the physical effects of people being denied treatment would more than pay for for the cost of treatment. Because do you know offhand what the cost per day averages for inpatient versus like incarceration or... Well, I can't tell you um, per day, but I can tell you that um, the ratio that's used is that it costs about $7,000 to do um, inpatient treatment, and it would cost on an annual basis for prison anywhere between 43 and 48. Right. So that's a huge difference. For one person. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. And And... We were just started talking in our last segment about some of the successes, and I never really had a chance to give you an opportunity to talk about some of the successes you've seen over the last few years. Most certainly, um, and thank you. Um, what, what I have seen is um, more people being willing to say that they're in recovery. Uh, we've learned from faces and voices of recovery, as I can say, that I am a person in long-term recovery, which means that I haven't had a drink or a drug since um, for over 20 years and and can share how my life has turned around. It's so good to be, be seeing that happen. We're not where we want to be, but we will get there. What's happened is in our state is that... Um, we had devastating cuts, but because people are speaking up along with other coalitions, um, there is now $16 more million in the state legislature for very necessary um, addiction services. There's also a demand for recovery support services, which are there you know, besides having treatment, helping people to um, maintain recovery. And with that... Um, Moore um, has been able to have very successful public policy forums with key legislators there, which has been really, really, really good. And we have a campaign to get two people from every district that will represent Moore in, 
with all legislators. And with that, I would be amiss if I did not mention um, celebrating National Alcohol and Drug Addiction Recovery Month, which we will have done for 18 years. And from having had 50 people, we have a, a walk um, to the State House and a celebration as well as um, a public policy discussion with our single state agency, which will take place on September 23rd. And then we join with Faces and Voices of Recovery with a rally for recovery on September 20th. One of the local coalitions that we go hand-in-hand with will be celebrating um, a rally for recovery with a walk for recovery in the Alston Brighton area, which is very exciting. So those are the successes, and, you know, we're... We're wanted on um, everywhere, and we look forward to the time when we can be everywhere. The rally on the 20th will consist of what? That will be um, the Alston Brighton Substance Abuse Task Force has asked more to be a partner with them, and that will consist of, um, at least locally, locally, it will consist of a walk to Herta Park around the country, um, there will be many opportunities to celebrate with walks in whatever way, um, and it's a way to to um, celebrate recovery voices count to um, to help people in the recovery process make sure that they get registered to vote, get informed on what um, the campaign issues that are out there, as well as to um, question um, people who may be running um, for office and put a platform out there to, you know, whether it's to end insurance discrimination or to demand better services. But um, I look at it as um, building a recovery voter block. Right. And I think that that's probably the crucial thing in this whole conversation is, is that people in recovery do vote and need to vote yes. and need to find their political voice. Exactly. And, and so often, because of the shame and the guilt and just the... Um, you know, the anonymity that comes for people who practice um, self-help or are involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the traditions is, you you know, you're not public on certain levels. And that's really, I think, hindered um, the, the advance of research. I think it's hindered the whole concept that people do recover because if you're anonymous about it, you're not celebrating it. And what the rally does and Recovery Month does is give multiple agencies and communities a way to celebrate the fact that people do recover. That, that's so true. Um, and when you see it, as one person said um, when he shared at our Alcohol Awareness Month forum that he was so excited by participating in Recovery Month because there he was with a, with, with a thousand other people in recovery and families and friends. And it, it took away discrimination and there was a huge call for respect and it was mutual respect and a certain amount of pride, um, huge amount of pride. Um, so that's one example of where you know it, it can it can all take you. So um, the theme this year is join the voices for recovery, um, real people, real recovery, and that's so so um, so exciting um, to be participating and be part of. And we'll be right back to talk with Marianne a little bit more about Recovery Month and. Um, some other things that people can do to um, enhance the, the awareness that recovery from addiction is possible. We'll Very be right good. back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcast each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. We're in our final segment with Marianne Frangoulis. And uh, Marianne has always been a very enlightened person who's always kind of been ahead of, the, ahead of her time in many of these issues. Uh, Marianne's a very passionate advocate. And I think that she kind of led the way for SAMHSA under Dr. Wesley Clark, who maybe was it eight years ago or so, um, really saw the need for friends and families to unite and be able to have a voice to help with public policy, to help with insurance discrimination. And SAMHSA funded a variety of uh, local state initiatives of uh, versions of the Massachusetts Organization for Addiction Recovery. New Hampshire has Friends of Recovery New Hampshire. Um, Connecticut has CCAR. What's, what's the Connecticut organization, Marianne? Um SAMHSA has, um, they have funded recovery support services as well as sponsoring um, National Alcohol and Drug Addiction Recovery Month. Right. So if you, almost every state, I know every state in New England and New York has a couple recovery uh, agencies, uh, consumer advancement or um, development agencies. So if you're listening and you want to find out, you can go to the SAMHSA website. If you want to find out about Recovery Month, um, it's recoverymonth.org. Is that 
Recoverymonth.gov, I believe. Dot gov, dot yes. <laughs> I know in the state of Washington, they have a um, they have a bunch of people in recovery who are bikers, and they do a run for recovery during the month. And I think they're connecting with either Oregon or Idaho to have a multi-state run where they get a bunch of sober bikers out um, doing uh, kind of consciousness raising around um, recovery and, and substance abuse issues as well. So there's all kinds of creative things that people do for Recovery Month. Oh, most definitely. And I, um, we will be having a um, motorcycle run ourselves. And we'll be, um, I, sh- I'm, I should have been first on my list of things to talk about. <laughs> and uh, we hope to make it a, it is a New England-wide one. We don't have a date yet, but we're, in the next couple of days, we will be. Will that be during the month of um, September? Yep. September. Yep. I know um, a friend of mine, uh, I'll drop his name, Bob Richards out in Washington, he's, his hope is that some some September every all the bikers will converge on Washington. Wow. For a big run, you know, and do kind of a bikers on the mall. Wow. Kind of consciousness raising. Exciting. Um, exciting. Yeah, 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 it is. And I think that um, it is exciting to know that recovery is possible and, and there are so many people out there in recovery that um, there people just don't even know it, you know. And, I, and I'm hoping through your effort and the effort of other people that being in recovery will be something people can be proud of, and and they won't feel like social piranhas because they're not drinking or, or exactly, hot. exactly. And if you think of what people think of when they think of a motorcycle rider, um, it, you know. Here you are. It, um, you get somebody who is, you know, on the, that can appear like on the on the on the rougher side, um, but most definitely, you know, are wonderful um, people um, in recovery who have known the devastation of this disease and have turned their lives around and wanting to help um, the rest of the community. So um, it's very. Um, it's very exciting, very, very exciting. Well, I know some uh, places have family picnics for Recovery Month. Where, yes, uh, yep, exactly. And that's yeah. what we have a combined motorcycle ride and a family picnic, um, which is which is going to be wonderful. Has I'm saying going to be because it always has been. Yes, but yes, um, there are all kinds of ways, and there's still time to plan Recovery Month events. So um, if people haven't started to, they're most welcome if you're in Massachusetts to participate with us. Um, you just can dial 617-423-6627 or um, go on our website um, or, um, you know, find out um, in your state by going to the SAMHSA website if indeed if there are events or do your own thing. It can be a small thing. It can be... Um, that you just want to have a proclamation signed by your governor. Um, it can be um, a, a special meeting. Um, it can be a press conference. Um, it can be a family picnic on the smaller side. Um, it can be anything you want it to be. It can be an open house at a treatment facility. Yes, yes. You know? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And I think that if you go to the website that Marianne suggests, there's there's a, like a kit that you can download that talks about that gives you the template for press releases and 
different ideas and how to advertise, and there's a lot of good suggestions that's available free. Absolutely. It's it's great. And I feel very pleased to be um, a member of the National Alcohol and Drug Addiction Recovery Month Planning Partners, and I have been for, for quite a while, and it's been um, very exciting to see it evolve um, because when I first started, there weren't that many states that were celebrating Recovery Month, and now I believe just about every one in, in multiple events, too. So um, it's just one way to have a good time and 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 end in, in, end in discrimination and celebrate the value of recovery. Right, right. So in our last few minutes, Marianne, do you have any suggestions for um, for people that want to become active or want to help and the discrimination that their family has experienced? Yes. Um, if you live in the state of Massachusetts, um, you can certainly um, call um Call me and I can give you information, email you information on um, right now we have opportunities to increase our budget for substance abuse services or I should say addiction prevention treatment recovery services. Um, and that's really good. We have opportunities to end insurance discrimination. Um, and I would just encourage people with that specific information um, to uh, to call your, your legislators about it. I would also, to get the latest of what's happening nationally, go to the uh, Faces and Voices of Recovery website, um, and all you have to do is Google Faces and Voices of Recovery, and it will come up, and get involved in National Alcohol and Drug Addiction Recovery Month. And we honestly believe that Faces and Voices of Recovery that are visible, vocal, and valuable will be victorious. And they've already begun. Um, you know, we see we see so many train wrecks in the news, and I think that it's so important that for every time you see Britney Spears in throes of her, whatever's going on with her, that we have a way to counter that with somebody like William Moyers or, um, you know, other people that, that are doing well and that have a high profile in terms of their recovery. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um when people are not doing so well, it's, it's, I think there needs to be a way of understanding that this is a disease um, and to note that, you know, help is possible and for many people it takes a few trials um, to get there. And then, as we talked about long-term recovery, there are people out there, you know, such as myself, but I'm not a national notable, <laughs> such as William Cope Moyes, um, and who have a very public uh, face and who demonstrate the value of recovery. Right. So thank you all very much for listening today. And Marianne, thank you so much. As always, you're just an inspiration for anyone who wants to advocate for um, the treatment of substance abuse disorders or for the people who are suffering from substance abuse disorders. You're a great role model for all of us. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you. Very we'll good. See you next week, everyone. Have a good week. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.